This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Who is the self in your selfie? The self we present to the public has undergone a great deal of change. Where once there was a demure face behind a fluttering fan, today we find the ubiquitous selfie. Both our own sense of self as well as the way we present ourselves has evolved over time. Today's guest, Tara Isabella Burton, has written a fascinating book about that evolution. Tara is also the author of an earlier book, Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, National Geographic, and other publications, including the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, And I'm delighted to welcome Tara Isabella Burton to the podcast today to talk about her new book, Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. Tara Isabella Burton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. What attracted you to the topic of self-presentation? How did you get into it? So my doctoral research uh, was in theology, but in, uh, was specifically about the theology of dandyism and self-creation in the 19th century. So um, while my focus was mostly on French writers like uh, Barbie Dorfili and Joris Carl Hismont, um, the, the most kind of uh, best known example of this in the English speaking world is Oscar Wilde, who was inspired indeed by Joris Carl Hismont, who's against nature is the basis of uh, the yellow book that corrupts Dorian Gray and Wilde's novel. And I was interested in this question of what does it mean to create yourself, to create your life as a work of art, as these late 19th century dandies did, against a cultural and indeed spiritual theological background of uh, increased uh, industrialization, mass production and mass reproduction, as well as a increasingly secularizing world. Um, after I finished my doctorate in 2017, I put my research away for a while and started focusing on uh, writing about the present. I went straight into uh, religion journalism, first at Vox.com and then as a freelancer. 
mostly writing about religion and the internet and uh, the religious landscape beyond organized religion. And uh, around 2020, as I began thinking about my next project after uh, my first book, Strange Rights, came out, I began realizing that these, these sort of two interests I had were deeply connected, that contemporary internet culture and the idea of um, sharing our authentic selves with the world through these slightly artificial means, whether it's sort of filters on an Instagram selfie or the act of personal branding on Twitter, that a lot of the questions and anxieties around self-making in the contemporary era could be linked to my original uh, research about the 19th century, and indeed more broadly to this much bigger, uh, perhaps more ambitious historical question that um, I trace from the Renaissance onwards, which is, what does it mean in a world, particularly a world that has changing views of God and the self, to create our own identities, to shape our own lives, to make ourselves. And so self-made became uh, an opportunity for me to tell this bigger story uh, historically while still examining what it means to be in an internet-saturated world where more and more of us, indeed maybe most of us, are called upon to do personal branding, either personally or professionally. So after studying the elusive and essential thing we call the self, what do you conclude, if you have a conclusion? Is our sense of self entirely socially constructed, as some would say, or is there something to the notion of an authentic self? So I'll answer that by saying I think uh, the prevailing cultural notion that I want to challenge in 2023 in uh, let's say broadly speaking, the West, just to uh, to narrow down our argument a little bit, is that um, who we truly, deeply, authentically are is defined by who we want to be. That looking uh, internally by understanding our own uh, psychological and affective states, understanding our own desires, we have some kind of key to our real selves. Whereas the uh, socially constructed parts of our identities, our, our relationships to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our communities, all of these are increasingly, I think, seen as uh, obstacles to be overcome in pursuit of individual and personal self-actualization. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote Self-Made is to challenge that view, not because I think that uh, the self ought to be exclusively socially determined or only understood as uh, a kind of network of biographical facts and geographical situatedness, but because I think that what makes us human, what's, what vitally makes us human is the tension between these two different elements of who we are. The fact that we are animals, mortal animals, who, who are uh, will one day die and are not free in that way, that we are social and relational beings whose sense of ourselves comes from stories, from language shared in community, and also that there is something distinct and unique about each of us that allows each of us to imagine our own selves, our own lives, our destinies, our dreams in ways that are not obvious to other people unless we disclose or express them. You find that tension, uh, for example, in, uh, you know, the, in, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, what a piece of work is a man. 
And yet I think more and more we've lost sight of um, seeing ourselves as, as both in favor of a vision of the self as kind of pure and internal, having to struggle to break free from the repressive society that somehow is less real than who we think we are. And you started with uh, the Renaissance, you said. Uh, so talk a bit about how the Enlightenment, the age of reason, contributed to the belief in self-creation. So I think one of the, the major contributions that, broadly speaking, the European Enlightenment had on this development of the sense of self is something that I call in the book the disenchantment of circumstance or the disenchantment of custom. By which, by which I mean a transition from, roughly speaking, a pre-modern world, uh, a deeply Christian world, um, in many cases a deeply Catholic world, that saw the social uh, imaginary as part of a holistic working system. That our social lives, our social roles, from peasant to king to pope, uh, were tied deeply into an orderly world that God had placed. Uh, Fast forward a few hundred years to the Enlightenment as more and more philosophers and writers and humanists were questioning this idea, questioning in particular the power of the Catholic Church, especially in France. Um, there became a kind of growing interest in the idea that the social order was not just not God-given, but kind of arbitrary or random. The, the word custom, which you find in writers from Montaigne to Voltaire to Diderot kind of becomes a dirty word. Oh, we, we, we do things this way because it's custom. It doesn't mean anything. There's a whole genre of uh, these kind of traveler's tales, uh, like one written by um, Diderot, uh, another by Montesquieu, that focus on the idea of travelers going to a, another part of the world, what was then called the New World, or to Asia, to find that people did things differently there. And this meant that if people did things differently all over the world, perhaps how we do things here in Europe was simply random or uh, determined by others and thus could be rejected or transformed. That increasingly uh, the self and the self's own uh, reason and desires became seen as more authoritative than that of external authority. And that shift, which we can trace to the Enlightenment, has really trickled into our, our modern sense of self thereafter with a focus on our own reason, our own autonomy at the expense of the collective wisdom of the crowd. Uh, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant's famous definition of enlightenment is of a, a, a child cutting their, their leading strings, uh, basically a kind of leash that you would put a, a toddler on to teach them to walk, that part of uh, growing into intellectual maturity was about um, looking inwards and uh, adopting and ascertaining one's own views rather than listening to those of the crowd, of custom, certainly of king or church or pope or what have you. Well, the emphasis on individuality, autonomy, self-perfection, and, and authenticity has so permeated American culture that it's even been used in a long-term ad campaign for the least individual-oriented enterprise I can think of, the U.S. Army. Uh, although the Army 
has had difficulty this past year since the uh, pandemic meeting its recruiting uh, goals. It, for many, many years, has a long-running recruiting campaign of be all you can be, join the Army. So reflect on that for that for us. In light of your research, why do you think in that most collective uh, environment, the be all you can be appeal to the individual appeals to young Americans? Increasingly, I think when uh, we do not culturally speaking at a broader level, have a sense of external purpose for human beings, or to be more precise, uh, our purpose as humans is to be our best selves, live our best lives, decide who we are. There's a kind of existential decision where the very act of deciding who we are and what we want and going for it is kind of seen as like that thing which makes us human rather than uh, a particular external standard of virtue and morality. So to, to discover yourself, to find yourself, to access your true self, to be your best self, all of these are kind of the what I would consider a new moral ex- exhortation. Um, you, you sort of see versions of this both in uh, what's sort of colloquially known as the American dream, the idea that you can work hard in order to have a better financial or social destiny than uh, your parents did. But also more broadly, uh, you I think that there is this kind of general cultural trend that the we have to look within in order to discover ourselves, in order to be the most human, the best human we can be. Uh, and this is not necessarily entirely new. As far back as the Renaissance, you have uh, humanists like Pico della Mirandola somewhat controversially uh, tell the story of creation, that God gives humanity the power to, uh, he says, thou mayest fashion thyself, that somehow this act of decision-making is uh, what makes us human. But the difference between Pico della Mirandola excuse me, Pico della Mirandola, who was a very controversial figure in his time, and now is that this is uh, normalized and standard rather than a little bit heretical. And I think that uh, a little bit of a, the implicit danger of this kind of thinking is that if, if you are uh, not somehow taking control over your own life, the implication is that you're kind of failing at the project of being human. If being human involves making these kind of individualistic decisions or uh, cultivating your personal brand or becoming, in in essence, the creator of your own life, then implicitly, if you're not doing these things, it means that you're failing. We see certainly an example of this on the economic side uh, in uh, American history where often, uh, repeatedly, in pretty much every generation of American thought, those who fail to be self-made, the self-made man, the captains of industry, uh, for whatever reason, be it be it uh, structural factors or um, individual factors, that they are sort of demonized as not having worked hard enough, not having tried hard enough, not having wanted it badly enough. And this kind of mismatch between um, the conviction that anyone 
can or should shape their own destiny. And that not shaping your own destiny in this very individualistic way is a moral failing is so deeply encoded in uh, Western and particularly American culture. So it doesn't surprise me at all that uh, even such a collective, uh, in many ways, institution as, as the military would use these kinds of slogans or use these kind of recruiting tools precisely because they're so encoded in American life and American values. So that's the dark side of all this self-creation, the pressure on the individual, the no no excuse, no fate or destiny uh, that can be looked at to explain why you're not a captain of industry or a beauty queen. Uh, And what about what's widely called the epidemic of loneliness? Do you think that's related? I absolutely do. I think that the more that we fail to see ourselves as contingent beings, beings whose existence is a blend of freedom and what you might call facticity, givenness, uh, the less likely we are to understand the importance of communities, and particularly communities that we don't necessarily choose. Our families, our neighbors, the people kind of alongside us on the street. Um, I think that increasingly, and in, in an increasingly fractured society, one, a fracture that's gone into overdrive gone into overdrive as a result of the internet, where we can be part of communities of affinity of desire, where we can seek out on Twitter or Facebook people who think like us, who look like us, who share our ideas. Um, It does not prime us to develop the kind of thicker, more rooted bonds that you have when you participate in a community, regardless of whether or not you agree with everything that everyone in that community says. And I think that the more disembodied we become, as uh, up to 90% of Americans now have smartphones, the more uh, connected we are, particularly post-pandemic, to this digital world where we can present ourselves exclusively as the people we want to be, the less space there is for the kind of more challenging social relationships that come from being um, in relationship with those that we can't simply perform for. I was asked uh, at a recent book talk what the best antidote for self-making was. And I I came to the conclusion that that it's friendship, that it's relationships with people who know you well enough and over a long enough timescale that they can see through in hopefully a, a loving way the mask that we all, to a greater or lesser extent, put on socially. That, that those kinds of rooted relationships stop us from becoming merely avatars of ourselves, putting on aspirational visions of who we are. But I do think that, and I worry that the more we kind of, the more the more we work online, the more our lives are mediated through influencer culture, through the attention economy, the more certainly my own livelihood is deeply rooted in Twitter and uh, the internet and getting people to click on uh, my byline or things I write, that as more and more industries look like this, self-creation becomes not even a joyful or creative act like it was for Oscar Wilde, but just a kind of relentless way of branding ourselves over and over without being able to engage uh, in a meaningful way with relationships beyond that level of illusion. 
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And speaking of Oscar Wilde and, uh, and the 18th century dandy Beau Brummel... Uh, talk a little bit about the amorphous quality of it, the uh, the charisma that makes someone cool, um, the person with style who sets the program, the Kim Kardashian of your title. Tell, talk about that. Sure. Well, um, I think an interesting element in the history of self-making is that uh, throughout uh throughout its history, certainly from the Renaissance onwards, there are um, a number of words for something that are often untranslatable that try to get at what is that thing that the star has, the, the person who seems to have some maybe even magical or divine or intangible quality uh, has. It's not quite charisma. It's not quite style. It's not quite elegance. Uh, in, in the Renaissance, this is called uh, by uh, Baldessare Castiglione, uh, sprezzatura. And it's sort of light, lightness or effortlessness. You, you make something look effortless uh, in order to perhaps indicate to the public that you are one of those God-favored geniuses that simply has this incredible innate talent rather than working really, really hard to uh, be good at something. You simply are divinely favored. Uh, in fa- fast forward a few hundred years uh, to the Regency era, early 19th century London, and this quality was referred to as a bon ton. Again, literally, it sort of means good manners, but but what it really means is elegance, wit, style, charm. What what Beau Brummel, this famous standee, has, and your ordinary person does not. You find it again in old Hollywood with the concept of it coined by the British novelist Eleanor Glynn in a Cosmopolitan article, and I want to say 1927. All of these concepts play with the idea that there is something innate and special and distinct about a certain kind of person who is able to be a self-maker, who is set above the common herd, the crowd, the populace, what you might call in modern parlance, the sheeple. but if you look a little closer at these qualities, um, these these fantasies of innateness, and you find that pretty much everywhere you have a theory of innate, special, God-given quality, you have a genre of self-help book telling an ordinary person how to fake it till they make it, how to get it. And you find this with, with in a sense, sprezzatura is, is a concept theorized in, in uh, a book, uh, the Manual for Courtiers, that is basically a kind of certain kind of self-help book. You find this again in uh, old Hollywood, where while we're theorizing about these stars who are magical beings like Clara Bow, who just have this power, there's advertisers for uh, soap or perfume or hand cream or cold cream that are saying, you, you too could have this. You too could get it if you buy the right products, if you work hard enough, if it makes, if you can make it look like you have it. And so this tension between uh, shaping perception 
and shaping perception such that you appear to have this kind of godlike quality of charisma is a huge part of uh, basically celebrity culture, where this kind of um, paradox of if you look like you're trying too hard, it means you don't have it, but you have to work hard to look like you have the thing that makes you not work hard is so deeply bound up with the myth of stardom. And ultimately, I argue with in my book, these kind of ideas get reconciled with a vision of um, desire as being the thing that that it is. So your very willingness uh, to embrace your own desire to have it shows that you have it. It's a kind of harnessing of your own innateness. I think there's a 1928 advertisement for a self-help course called Personal Magnetism. And the tagline for this advertisement is, everyone has it, but not one, only one in a million or one in a hundred, I don't quite recall, knows how to use it. And this idea that you could, if you just knew how to harness your own you-ness, if you knew how to take the raw material of yourself and shape it in a particular direction, that is the thing that makes you a star, that makes you a special person. A mix, as it were, of work and innateness or of shaping perception and something deeply authentic to the self, fused in this image of desire as the engine of being a star. Using the words divine and godlike brings to mind your chapter on the extropian movement of the 1990s, which when I read that, it reminded me of the biblical Tower of Babel story in which humans try to become God. Uh, how does the extropians and their techno-utopian faith fit into your ideas of self? So I think uh, the extropians are perhaps uh, an extreme example of this group of people in, in the 1990s who thrilled at the technological promise of the newly new uh, potentials of network computing began to kind of pursue what you might consider a transhumanist agenda that one day we could basically transcend human physical limitations, including death. Now, they're, they're a sort of more extreme group of people but I think more broadly, the sentiment behind a lot of technological development, one that we still see today in the visions of, for example, Elon Musk uh, or other tech titans of the modern age, is that technological potential allows human beings to take on the roles of the universe, creation, but also moral judgment, uh, traditionally reserved for the deity. As uh, one of the great prophets of this new tech culture, the um, countercultural writer uh, Stuart Brand, who was behind the Whole Earth uh, catalog, famously wrote, we are as gods and we might as well get good at it. And uh, as you say, there's certainly uh, from a perhaps more traditional perspective, a, a, a bit of uh, a bit of hubris about this this uh, belief but I think, think that, yeah, <laughs> just a touch, a tad. Um, but I think that this idea that technological potential, particularly uh, the internet and kind of networked computing that allows us to become disembodied, to transcend our bodies in these particular ways, 
is exciting precisely because it allows human beings to do that thing, which it is the purpose of human beings to do, which is experience self-transcendence and experiencing self-transcendence from the body, uh, as well as from social expectation and from, to go back to that dirty word, the Enlightenment, custom. Uh, One of the prevailing motifs that you find in uh, documents of this period, such as uh, John Perry Barlow's 1991 uh, Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, is the idea that this networked world uh, is kind of politically free. There's a deep libertarian core to a lot of this ideology, as well as being uh, personally free on the set in the in the sense that any human being could create a vision of themselves or an avatar of themselves online, that the internet world would represent freedom from ordinary governments, ordinary political uh, repression in many cases, and would be this kind of magical wild west where human freedom could flourish untrammeled. Uh, as we've seen, uh, it didn't exactly work out quite like that. But at the same time, this vision of um, deeply libertarian vision of human freedom and the Internet as an engine of and for human freedom has persisted throughout contemporary tech culture. Finally, Tara, your earlier book, Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World, uh, dealt with American search for new religious forms. Uh, which is actually not new in America, uh, but it's also new again. So uh, tell us about what, in your view, the relationship is between the culture's emphasis on self-making and the growth of new and sometimes strange religions. So I like to say that both strange rites and self-made are examinations from different perspectives of the same phenomenon, which is the divinization of the self. Uh, in Strange Rites, which is an exploration of um, what's often called the spiritual but not religious, I look at the way that as more and more Americans identify as religiously unaffiliated, which does not mean that they are atheists or don't believe in a higher power, but simply that they do not identify themselves as members of an organized religion. Uh, I look at how more and more Americans, about 25% of Americans overall, going up to 36% of uh, younger millennials and members of Generation Z, basically say they they make their own religion. They mix and match. They remix, taking spiritual practices from one tradition uh, and um, rituals from another. Uh, They might go to religious services here and there with family. They might do yoga. They might do tarot cards, et cetera, et cetera. And the criteria for them is, does this resonate with me? Is this authentic to my sense of self, my theological understanding? And this sense that we ourselves are the arbiters uh, morally and philosophically of, uh, of our own religions, that what religion should do is uh, fit itself to our own interior states, um, that is a distinctly contemporary phenomenon. And in Self-Made, I try to, tra- to trace how the sense that we, and particularly on an individualistic level, our internal psychological sense of the world is uh, seen as sufficiently authoritative, morally, spiritually, philosophically, intellectually, so that we really can say that ourselves are the closest thing there is to God in the world. And I think uh, many people would not 
explicitly think of it like that. Often, I think, and I, I read about this both in Strange Rates and Self Made, there's a lot of interest in language of energy, of vibes, of the universe. But often the model is that somehow by looking inwards, by having a certain psychological sense of self, we can connect with or even harness and shape the energy underpinning the universe. That it is precisely our emotions that link us up with whatever is divine running through us out there or in here. The book is Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Tara. Thank you for having me. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.